Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 117 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I'm culminating a four-day stretch where I've had two podcast interviews, (laughs) both me being on another podcast, a podcast recording, me interviewing someone to be on my podcast and me on their podcast, a quickly recorded podcast interview that was a great idea that I thought of and had to record right away. And now on day four of this massive podcast recording frenzy or day five, perhaps I'm recording another one primarily because Jack fell asleep in the car and he, Kenny and Gracie are out of the house. So here I am. So it's Sunday, Sunday, November 12th, and it's freezing outside. So I'm happy to stay inside and lots has gone on today. There was a major half marathon in New Hampshire, the Manchester city, and a good friend of mine, Pam ran, and she had this amazing race. What makes it significant today is I spent the better part of this morning recording a podcast done by a woman named Brooke who interviews runners. It's a whole podcast on running and running the life. And so my story as a runner, of course, is relatively unique in that I was incredibly asthmatic when I started running and was immediately really good at running. And I know in the state of New Hampshire, led the way for a lot of other young girls and female athletes in the sport of running to know that there was a spot for them and a place for them. So I love everything about her podcast. She uses running as as a metaphor in ways that I have often used running as a metaphor for life, for struggles, for journeys, for working hard, all those things. We had a wonderful conversation. We just talked about running. (laughs) It got me, of course, thinking about my own running because I haven't really talked about it a ton. And one of the major pieces of our conversation was around running and how good it is for your mental health. So even if you're not into running, everyone's heard of the runner's high. Do you get a runner's high and endorphins, which are these hormones that you secrete when you run? And essentially, and this varies different, this varies between men and women because our hormones are so different. Male bodies and female bodies secrete hormones in similar ways, but there are different hormones. And for women, hormones are much more tied to emotions around healing and health and sort of balancing your life and finding solutions. And a lot of men's physical hormones are around more problem solving than problem fixing. And maybe those two sound like the same things, but when you look at anthropology, you look at people living in the wild, you look at other mammals and other examples of living creatures, the male and female versions of these animals have very different functions and roles in what keeps the tribe healthy or the pack healthy or the community healthy. And I know if you were to interview 50 high school boys about why they like running and 50 high school girls, you will get a lot more girls talking about the mental health benefits of running, how they have a community and they've made friends, how they love going on runs and talking about things. And it's not that you don't hear those things from the boys, you do. But from boys, the first things you're more likely to hear is how they like getting fit and getting stronger and running faster. And it's very performance-based, what they can get their bodies to do, you know, and beating somebody and winning a race. Those things are also prevalent with women, but they don't come up first necessarily. 
So it was an amazing conversation. And it brought me back to a book I read years ago called The Silence of Great Distance. And it was written by a man, a coach, around the onslaught of female distance runners in the 80s. And it centered on one particular runner who was this amazing runner. And then she left running. Her name was Stephanie. And he chronicled in this book several high-level runners from the University of Wisconsin. The tragic turns many of those lives took and the tragic turns many of them had come from to get to be female distance runners. And he highlighted the number of female distance runners who came from childhoods of sexual abuse or abuse in general, and the number of female distance runners that had addiction issues and problems. And, you know, when you look at any, any elite athlete nowadays, because, you know, so many years have passed since the 80s, that's 30, 40 years ago now, a lifetime ago, you realize that you look at any elite athlete or anyone that's really good at something, when you're really good at something, you spend your entire life doing it. And when you, to have that focus on one thing, an addictive nature to your personality is helpful. And this book really analyzed what was happening in distance running. I will say eating disorders were much more prevalent back then, or maybe not more prevalent, but more somehow accepted as part of the, of the puzzle. When, when you stood on a starting line at a high level women's race, the number of anorexics was astounding. You didn't see anorexic boys. You know, it, that wasn't an issue that came about for boys, but, but girls with the body issues we have to face and the scrutiny of our bodies and anorexia was a very prevalent piece of, of elite distance runners. Also the pressure on female athletes to justify their existence. We talked a lot about that in my interview was immense. Title IX did wonderful things for women, but quite honestly, it did so at the expense of men. Lots of universities had to cut men's programs to meet the legal requirements of Title IX, which was to have equal opportunities for men and women. So at my college, Boston University, they got rid of football. That was like 60 male athletes. So that balanced out three or four different women's programs. So they didn't have to get rid of other men's programs. But that was a lot of pressure for girls because male athletes would look at us as the reason. Oh, because of you, you stupid girls. Now we can't have athletics. And it was really hard. I think it's why I'm so focused on maintaining the integrity of athletics for women and girls, because it's been such a profound piece of my existence. So then we got talking as way leads on to way in a thousand tiny steps about the sort of the, the history of women's athletics and what has transpired in all the years. And oftentimes in any sport, not just running, your sport becomes your voice. It's how you express yourself. And I know for me as a childhood sexual abuse survivor, I hated my body. I hated how I felt in it. I hated that it betrayed me. I hated so much about it until I started running. And then I loved my body because it was amazing at something. And the thing it was amazing at wasn't controversial. It was running. Yay. And so, so I began a new, a new love-hate relationship with my body around asthma and my desire to be drunk and drink alcohol and that sort of thing. I also had a, an ability to step out of myself. And that happens, anyone that's had a significant trauma in their life, whether it's emotional abuse or verbal abuse or child abuse, physical or sexual, or any sort of trauma like an earthquake or a fire, when you're in incredible traumatic situation in the present, your mind shuts down and you can step out. It's almost like watching yourself from across the room. And so when you're in a distance race, what a great skill. I'm just gonna step out right now and I'll be outside my body and I can manage the pain better. This wasn't something I would do consciously, but I would notice oftentimes after certain races, when the pressure was on, I could pick up my pace exponentially and not feel any discomfort. I was so caught up in, oh no, no, if I don't pick it up, I'm gonna lose the race that I didn't feel it. 
So some of that would be adrenaline, perhaps fight or flight. But I do know that my non-abuse surviving friends had a much more conscious effort to step out of themselves and conquer the physical pain than I did, which leads to the next piece of what I'm going to talk about today in my podcast. So the next piece would be silencing the voice. In the book, The Silence of Great Distance was a classic example of what happens oftentimes with women and girls. When things get to be too much, we're often just encouraged to be quiet. Or we decide the best thing we can do is just to be quiet, put it in a box, make believe it never happened and move on. And that's incredibly tragically sad and unfair to anyone male, female, black, white, old, young, big, small, whatever, whatever. It's incredibly unfair and sad that somebody would get to a point in a crisis where the best thing to do was to shut up, to be quiet, to pack it away and make believe it didn't exist because these things do exist. And at the least opportune times, they rear their ferocious heads and insert themselves into your lives. A big part of my book, Motherland, A huge piece of my book was called A Strange Kind of Justice. This was the part of the memoir in which we would describe the lawsuit that I went through related to Molly's death. When you settle a lawsuit, you sign off on your ability to share your story. You can't talk about it. It never happened. That's kind of what they want you to do. And the attorneys on the the hospital side have no trouble bullying you and being mean and threatening in their insertion and insistence that you shut your mouth. As a child that was told to be quiet after my sexual abuse, that's a big trigger for me. When I look at lots and lots of social agendas going on right now, oftentimes the purpose of a social agenda is to uplift a minimized population. But sometimes that very agenda and that very population seeks to minimize another to gain traction. So in order to make themselves feel valuable and valid and here, that happens by minimizing someone else. When that population speaks up, they're vilified. So I'll use a very, very not current example. I'll go back to Title IX in the 80s. Those male athletes had every right to be upset. You're a football player at your college. You love your school. You're committed. And you find out that next year there's no football team. If you want to continue to play football in college, you have to go someplace else. And what were the men told? Well, you know what? There's nothing you can do about it. The women are here. The sad piece is society wasn't in a place where those men didn't realize they could speak up and say, hey, Title IX, if you're going to insert these rules, then help colleges fund these rules. Don't just say you have to do this, figure it out. Yes, we want the girls and the women to compete as well. So let's make it, let's make this happen without sacrificing the athletic programs that already exist. I think a lot of today's issue and issues in athletics stem from resentments that still exist from 40 years ago, 45 years ago, when Title IX, 50 years ago, was first instituted. And basically, it was a demand that society allow women to do everything men do. Well, quite frankly, women and men and men and women are not the same. And what I'm trying to say here is there are certain things that will always be different, but those things shouldn't dictate and define what happens in the journey. So for example, I remember years ago, I had college roommates that were Jewish. A lot of Jewish families went to BU, a big Jewish population. And I never knew that there was a lot of racial tension between Jewish people and black people. I never knew that. Didn't dawn on me that either group would be racist to another group because they were such victims of racism themselves. This is not a judgment. Let me be clear. I was your blue-eyed, blonde, white girl from white New Hampshire 
who only saw what she saw in my 95% white town at the time. And I only knew about racism, what I saw on TV or what I learned from my very white New Hampshire teachers. So I don't want to offend anybody. And I know that I might anyway, I'm just letting you be clear that I really am not trying to do that. What I'm trying to say is if somebody teased me for being skinny, the last thing I would do is tease somebody for being skinny because I don't like it being done to me. And so I wouldn't do it to someone else. And so I had a hard time understanding the fact that a group of people that were so treated so poorly because of who they were, would treat another group of people poorly because of who they were and vice versa. And I remember talking with my, I had these wonderful roommates, Karen and Rhonda, and we talked and talked and talked about this and none of us really understood it. They felt like I did. Now we were, we were functioning on a personal level. Why would I treat my Jewish roommate poorly because they're Jewish? I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I find that the stupidest thing in the world. All three of us had this conversation around the fact that we couldn't understand two minimized populations, two populations that were made to suffer just because of the color of their skin or their belief of their religion would treat anyone else poorly for things they couldn't control, right? Not a value judgment, just an observation. And it blew my mind a little bit. But as I stepped back and looked at all sorts of social initiatives, I realized that all too often, one side that's feeling minimized on an issue will minimize the other side to build themselves up. And now you simply have a classic childhood playground situation of he said, she said, and both sides doing the same thing, claiming the other side is wrong and their side is right. And that's why it's okay for me to do it because I'm right. I see this a lot with atheism versus religionism. I see this a lot, Republican and Democrat. Oh my goodness. I, I saw a reel the other day that went on and on and on about oh, those liberal leftists, we don't hate anyone. And then there was a list of people that the liberal leftists hate. Well, okay, the far right-wing folks, the far right-wing rightists, the conservative rightists, whatever, also claim to be you know, strong in their convictions and they also hate a big, long group of people. So to me, it's two sides doing the same thing. So why am I rambling on and on and on about this? Part of my trauma around Molly's death was that I just felt like I wanted some sort of justice for her. I wanted her death to mean something. I wanted it to matter. She was fucking dead. And so because of all of the ways that her treatment was mishandled, a lawsuit seemed like a logical idea. I'm legally not, not allowed to disparage or insult any of the people involved in Molly's care because I signed an agreement that said I wouldn't. I was bought off. That's how I feel. I have a lot of self-hatred around the fact that I didn't just take it to court and just let a jury decide. The piece of a lawsuit that is surprising to me is how much the attorneys looked at my flaws as a human being as part of their argument. My flaws as a human being have nothing to do with how Molly was treated. And if they do, the hospital would simply be admitting that they treat people that make mistakes poorly. Like there was no, no logical reason around why six out of the eight hours of my deposition included mistakes I'd made, things that happened in my life five, 10 years ago, things that happened after Molly died, like none of those things mattered one iota in her treatment. And those attorneys know that. Their job isn't to seek justice. Their job isn't to improve their doctors. Their job is to prevent that big giant insurance company from having to cut me a check and to protect the pseudo wonderful image of whatever hospital or doctor's office they're representing. So we had a whole section in this book that we had to take out. So we still have a section and there are only two chapters in it now. And neither of those chapters go into any detail 
about what that process was like, but they relate to what I'm going through now, to what I, what I perceive is happening a lot now. I'm on a school board in my town in Concord, and there are two news sources in our town. One is a newspaper, one is an online source. The newspaper is incredibly liberal. The online source is a bit more conservative. So they battle. The newspaper doesn't like the online source because they still want people to buy their newspapers, right? So they disparage the person that runs the online source. The online source trashes the newspaper because actually he's pretty good at not trashing the newspaper. But, you know, they, they want people to read their stories. The website wants clicks, click, 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 click. And the newspaper wants you to pick it up or have it delivered to your house. So there's a lot of back and forth. And we have some very, very liberal folks on the school board that really publicly trash the online media site. And they specifically trash the personality and the person that's in charge of it. And that irks me to no end because they don't trash the newspaper. And this is a newspaper that has been horrible to me. Printed lies, printed gossip. They did a whole entire gossip piece on Roy's family and my family. It was 80% of it was conjecture and false. It was the most humiliating experience of my life. I realize now that Roy was actually involved in that, the creation of that article, which explains why it was printed in the first place, but they wouldn't ever give up that source. And it was awful. It was the most heinous thing I've ever gone through. Well, one of the many heinous things I've gone through. I am very easily triggered by hypocrisies in these things, by a group of people claiming one thing and then disparaging the other. So we had a situation and one of the people that so openly criticizes the website, the news site, went on and on about how we have to stop judging people because they're different. We have to stop, stop assuming because somebody's different than what we believe that they're bad, right? And it was a situation that left a lot of people puzzled. I can't go into it because it involves a human being, but it was just a situation that was presented one way on the news website and a different way in the newspaper. And there was back and forth and back and forth over it. And all that came out of that for me was this is, this is a person that sat at a board meeting and disparaged people for not accepting others just because they're different. And yet, because she doesn't like the way the news is presented on the website and because this person's beliefs are different than hers. She hates him. And I'm just like, this is what irks me. Have your beliefs and fight for your beliefs. But if you have to, if you have to knock somebody down and diminish them to make your belief stick, you have to rethink either A, the validity of your belief, or B, how you're trying to help that belief grow. And this is where I, this is just where I struggle. Nobody should have to erase who they are or change how they feel about themselves to allow someone else to feel okay about themselves. That doesn't mean there isn't empathy or compromise or conversation, but you can't invisible something because something different wants to feel better about themselves. There should be conservative news sources and liberal news sources. Somewhere in all that rhetoric is the truth. Somewhere in both sides is the truth. And I know I am made better by really examining all sides of an issue. So I've had to examine the hospital side and the pediatrician side on the issue of Molly. I don't always like what I see, but I can't completely 100% vilify the people involved in her and then claim and ask for people to understand that there's more to me than just the bad things those hospital attorneys wanted to share. I have to acknowledge that it's a bigger picture than this. That isn't always easy, but I will not say or ever agree that my behavior before her death or after justified their treatment of her. That's just crap. So I'm going to read to you again a little bit of Motherland, because for those of you that don't know me or haven't ordered it yet, I want you to read it. And this is from chapter 27, and it's called In Real Life. 
And essentially, it talks a little bit about what I've just been rambling on and on about now. I'm going to read some and talk and read some and talk. So in real life, chapter 27, Motherland. Any fight for justice, especially when it comes to fighting for your dead child, is never as clean cut or as satisfying a narrative as you see in the movies. In real life, the lines between the victims and the perpetrators are blurred. In real life, the legal process is less about truth and more about who can tell the most persuasive story. In real life, there's rarely closure, much less a sense of victory. Everything is a compromise. But we knew we needed to fight for Molly, and the fight carried us through this stage of grief. At the beginning of June, we received the pathology report, which revealed that Molly's tumor was benign. We'd suspected this from the start, but now we had definitive biopsy results. The roller coaster of grief and elation that I'd been through over the past month as we said goodbye to Molly, buried her, and then celebrated her through her musical, now turned to anger. Molly should never have died. The day after the news, we went to collect Molly's medical records. From the children's hospital where she'd spent a week unconscious as we prayed for her to wake up, from the ER where she had lain for 16 hours, from her pediatrician's office where she had visited multiple times, we settled on an attorney, not only because of his professional expertise, but because of his manner and his character, a choice I would be deeply grateful for. And then the six long months of information gathering began. Every photograph and video of Molly and us as a family that we'd ever taken, every essay and diary entry and letter she'd written, her yearbooks, her school reports, records of her dance recitals, her theater performances, her gymnastics meets, crates and crates of objects and recordings that summed up my little girl's life with us. Over a hundred interviews with friends, family, nurses, doctors. Our attorney had a film created of Molly's life that rep represented who she was and what she meant to those around her and to the wider community. We booked a space at, in the local middle school auditorium and put out a message on Facebook inviting people to come and share their stories. We thought a handful of close friends would show up. When we arrived, there were 30 people. The film producer said she was pleased with the turnout. This will help us make something good, she said. Just wait, I said. I think more people will show up. By the end of the filming session, we had filled the whole auditorium. 200 friends came to talk about Molly. Again, we were blown away by the love there was for Molly and by how much she clearly touched people's lives. Information gathering was a long, draining process. Our attorney said that the case would take as long as five years. In a way, I was glad. Just as the funeral and the musical had taken my mind off the unbearable grief of losing Molly, this process too helped me to find a reason to get up off the living room floor. It gave me a purpose to keep living. If we couldn't have Molly back, at least we could fight for her. I'm stopping for a minute, the reading. If you can see me, it's obvious. The two years that we were involved, we were involved in this legal process, the other piece that this did is it allowed us to live in the reality that she was still alive somewhere. Grief is a remarkably strange thing, and traumatic grief does things that, that make no sense. And there was a huge piece in all of us, in me, in Gracie, in Kenny, in my mother, I think, that believed that she'd come back or didn't believe that she was truly gone. Even though day after day after day, she wasn't there, and we had a grave, and we knew her body was in the box, your brain just tells you that she's still out there somewhere and not to worry about it. I think it's a survival mechanism. All the conversations we had around Molly during this process, she was still alive. We were talking about alive Molly. And so time stops. It stayed 2016 for a long time. And that's just a weird little interjection there. 
Okay, I'm reading again. For legal reasons, there's little I can share about the process or outcome of the case. Much of it has been mentioned in the local press and can be found there. I wish I could say more because I think I could help people who find themselves in a similar situation. I do, however, want to share this. The hardest part of the process, the part I wasn't prepared for, was how the process made me question myself as a mother. For a mother who is grieving deeply, who already feels guilt every second of every day about not having been able to keep her child alive, this felt like a particular kind of cruelty. It was awful. Think about your life, the things you've done right and the things you've done wrong, the things you're proud of and ashamed of, the things you'd go back and change and the things you hold up as victories, professionally and personally. They all form part of the mix of being human, of this journey that is life. We all acknowledge that we're a mix of all these things and we trust that our best selves come out on top. Now imagine looking at all those bad parts of yourself, those mistakes, the things you're ashamed of through a magnifying glass. Imagine those things becoming the most important part of the story of who you are. How would you feel about yourself? How would any of us feel about ourselves under that kind of one-sided scrutiny? I'd already put myself on trial. I'd already gone through every second of Molly getting sick, every second of the day she was born, trying to work out whether I'd missed something or whether I could have done something differently. And maybe there was something, a key moment, a turning point that might've set events spinning off in a different direction, a direction that might've saved her. But that's not something I can ever know. Kenny and I did what all decent parents do. We observed our kids closely. We noticed when they were sick. We sought medical help when they were. We took them to their physicals. We found specialists when they needed it. We did what parents do. We cared for our little girls as best we could. The legal process made us question ourselves as parents and as human beings. It all came out. Mine and Kenny's drinking, Kenny's debts, our failed marriage, my relationship with Roy, how I wasn't there when Molly was taken to the ER. I felt like it was my fault that she died from that tumor. One of the most persuasive parts of the bad mother narrative was this, my drug addiction. It's hard to write about this. I don't like that person. I, I know I don't like this version of myself, but I owe it to the story, to the mothers in America and all over the world, the women who live in motherland and struggle with this too, who know the truth that addiction is devastating. But there's another truth too, that addiction doesn't define you as a mother. Being a mother means being completely present for every moment of your child's life. Regular drug and alcohol use stops you from seeing what's going on right in front of you. It makes you absent, physically because of the effect of the drugs and mentally as you're constantly finding excuses to leave your home and your family to chase down your next fix. Okay, I'm gonna stop for a minute to be clear here. I was not abusing drugs before Molly died. I drank like a fish. My hardcore drug abuse came after her death. I will also say I spent a lot of time with somebody in the last months of Molly's lives who manipulated my desire to be drunk and in times of being drunk often got me to smoke pot with him. I have bad lungs. Smoking pot was never easy and he would blow it into my mouth sometimes. That was his desire to have me high. And the combination of drunk and high for me is, is a death knell. It obliterates any ability to make logical decisions. And I shudder at the times leading up to Molly's death that I spent with this person and that I was willing to be so drunk or high with him. My hardcore drug addiction, my daily getting high that I haven't admitted to very many people will come. That, that's a story that 
will be extremely difficult to tell, but a necessary one. And one that I love you all, but I'm not there yet. I just wanted to clarify that. I've been clean for a long time now, and my sobriety has given me clarity and heightened my guilt. I believe that if I'd never gotten involved in drug use, I would have seen Molly's pain more clearly and somehow fought harder for her, and she'd still be here today. Perhaps that's a delusion, part of a guilt monster that chases me down every day. I guess we'll never know, but it's something I have to live with. This I know to be true. I am a flawed mother, a flawed human being. The things I have done that I shouldn't have done, the things I should have done that I left undone. I have made more mistakes than I can count. I have a lifetime of regrets and poor decisions. And I could have been a better mother to Molly and to Gracie. And quite frankly, there are times I feel I can be a better mother to Jack. This is a, this is a, a challenge for all mothers. Being married is hard. Being a parent is hard. Being a human being is hard. We get it wrong sometimes, often. I never presented myself as a saint or as a perfect mother. If Molly were here today, she would tell you about all the times I'd let her down, the times we'd knocked heads and fought, the times I'd driven her crazy and disappointed her. But she'd also tell you that I loved her and Gracie more than anyone in the world. She'd tell you that I always put them first and that I would never have done anything to hurt them. She'd also tell you that my failures as a mother had nothing, nothing to do with her death. Okay, I'm going to stop reading again. That was the hardest part for me in this whole process. I, I, I already blame myself for things. I tend to surround myself with narcissistic people, people who have agendas in their friendships, who choose their friends and lovers for specific reasons that have nothing to do with falling in love with them. And the number of times I think of two or three different scenarios, the charter school scenario, my Robin scenario, and Roy, in some of the most heated conversations around Molly's death, around issues in our relationships or friendships, around the failure of the charter school, all of these times, the people I was involved with in these situations told me, all of this is your fault, Barbara, that I wasn't anti-racist enough to not be racist in the charter school scenario because I called out behavior where I was treated unfairly. In my friendship with Robin, she put on top of me all my drama issues, my issues around drama, my need for control, everything needing to be all about me. When quite honestly, anyone who spent significant time with this person knows that she calls all the shots and everything is very much about her. It's not always a bad thing. She knows how to have fun. And I know in one of my last conversations with Roy, his, he said to me, I just want to remind you, all of this is your fault. I tell myself that anyway, I don't need outside people to remind me, but I also know in digging through the good, the bad, and the ugly in everything I've gone through, seldom is any one person at fault for anything. You know, we live in a, in a society of mass shootings and genocide and racism and sexism and classism and all of the things that go on. We, we minimize populations to make ourselves feel better. All of this happens all the time. We become numb to it, I think. But in any initiative, there's not one side or another that's completely right without responsibility. We're all in it. You know, currently the Israeli versus Palestinian situation, neither of those sides are completely innocent or completely uninnocent. You know, both sides are victimized by the other. Both sides hurt the other. It's, it's impossible for me to take a side because there's too much involved. 
Yeah. I mean, this is, this is life. So this chapter for me illustrates all of these things, you know, Christian versus Jew, Jew versus Muslim, atheist versus anything, Republican versus Democrat, communism versus capitalism, all of it, all of these agendas, each side has culpability and contributes both to the solution and to the problem. I'm going to read again now. After years of fighting, there was no real resolution. What I can draw comfort from is that even though our fight wasn't world-changing in the way I'd hoped to be, it formed part of those thousand tiny steps toward making parents aware of how to better advocate for their children. Every now and then, I hear a story that gives me hope. A year after Molly's death, I was timing a track meet, and a girl collapsed at the finish line. Someone called 911. I went over. The girl was struggling to breathe. Everyone was telling her to calm down, as if that was an option. We need to get her some space and some air, I said, and we need to stop telling her to calm down. We need to stop telling her how she should be feeling, I said. I stayed with her until the ambulance arrived. Even then, she didn't want me to leave. She understood that I was on her side, that I wasn't questioning her pain. Later, the trainer came up to me. Thanks for helping, he said. Sure. You know, he said, my wife and I are physical therapists. We've been working with kids for years, but something's changed lately for us. In what way, I asked. Have you heard about the story of the little girl with the brain tumor? It's in all the newspapers where I live. My wife and I have been following it. It's really been tearing us apart. My chest tightened. What girl, I asked. Molly, a girl called Molly. I stood there dumbfounded. Slowly, I unzipped my jacket. I was wearing my Bolly B t-shirt. I'm her mother, I said. He looked at me, stunned. My wife and I realized that perhaps we've been letting our young athletes down, that when they get hurt or complain about struggling with something, we've often dismissed them for being emotional or dramatic. And we're good people, just trying to do our jobs well, but we let them down. We're trying to change that now, to do better. I loved everything about that conversation, that Molly's death had some impact on how they were doing their work. And more than that, that this man, this trainer, had just told me about Molly's story without even knowing who I was. Molly's story was spreading and it was saving lives. One of the overriding pieces of this for me is that there are times when we need to look at a situation from both perspectives. I'm talking about Molly now and her health. So she was always, always looked at as a 13-year-old girl, a very skinny, maybe dramatic and emotional 13-year-old girl. Her doctors would have better served her by saying, how would I treat these symptoms if she were a boy? Not invisibling either gender, not saying everyone should just be the same. No, 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 no. Looking at who she was and the body she lived in and then asking themselves, how else can I look at this other than the way I'm looking at it? And I think that's true with everything. And if there's any message I would, I would take from all of this, from athletics, from, for politics, for, for gender, for sex, for for behavior, for social constructs and pressures we put on people, for insisting that women specifically stop talking. I think that's a trigger for me because I spent so much of my life being told to be quiet. I see in the political realm, when you watch summaries of the debates on TV, never are the men called aggressive and bitchy and opinionated and, and criticized so much for being a loud mouth as the women are. Women aren't allowed to be loud like the men because we're somehow hysterical with it. The term for removing a uterus isn't a uterectomy, which it should be. It's a hysterectomy. Because in early mo modern days, removing the uterus would remove the hysteria from women. Because when, when women menstruate, 
the hormone rush can be immense. I know that my moods when I was having my period were seldom stable. It wasn't because I was hysterical. It was because I had level 10 pain cramps and blood gushing out of my body. Sorry to be gross, but I'm so attached to these issues and how they're manipulated for social agendas. It's pretty intense. And I want very much to not get stuck in my view, like the doctors of Molly got stuck in theirs. I want very much to be able to step out of my view and analyze and look at things from all sides. So I never got to write in this particular part of the book anything about how horrifyingly bad the lawsuit was. And those chapters are beautiful. But I get it. Everyone has their agenda and I have to play my part. I will say that I will find a way to tell her story and to share what happened to me. I just have to figure out a way to do it within the legal constructs of my agreement. <laughs> yes. I had to sign a separation agreement from the school district. And I remember Chris Rath violated it like three times. She sent it to the newspaper and she answered questions to the press. And anytime I did the same thing, I was immediately threatened with some legal sanction. It was unbelievable. And I, I just, so, so, you know, these things, these things stand out for me. <laughs> Don't tell me to be quiet. <laughs> Today has been an emotional day and it's been, and it all sort of started from Pam's half marathon and my interview on a running podcast and the thousand tiny steps are conversations and my thought process has taken in just the last few hours. So I hope you managed through it. I hope that you related to things, even if you're not a runner or the mother of a dead child or someone that's been anorexic or been sexually abused or told to be quiet, <laughs> oh, to be Barb for even 10 minutes. Anyway, I hope you found something helpful out of it and that you'll keep listening. Next week's episode is my interview with, with Lita, Lita Peterson, this amazing four foot 10 El Salvadorian woman who is amazing and is heavily into CrossFit. Please listen, even if you're not a CrossFit athlete, because so much of what we talk about is what it's like to age as a woman and what it's like to be a female in a CrossFit gym. And CrossFit gym can be, anal can be an analogy for a boardroom, an operating room, a, a classroom, a restaurant, a store. A political debate, you know, what it's like to be us aging in a society that does not celebrate aging females whatsoever. So anyway, that's my day. So as always, be good to yourself. Find good, wonderful ways to be good, good to yourself and do that. After you've done that, be good to someone else. Leave them better and happier than you found them. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.